Okay, the children are going to come back at the end of the service. We're just going to finish the service with a, a song together in a while. But before we do, we're just going to conclude our third part in our three-part study, looking at the truth behind the tradition of Christmas. Uh, and what we've been doing over the last few weeks is going through, first of all, looked at, I've kind of used the, uh, the, the, the Charles Dickens idea here, but Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. With Christmas past, we looked at the history and the origin of Christmas. Um, and there's some surprises there. Uh, some of you may have come across these things before, but if you've just kind of heard the traditional, typical Christmas story, um, you'll be surprised to find that a lot of the details that have been passed down are not at all biblical. In fact, most of the things that we celebrate at Christmas time um, have pagan origins. They come from Babylon. It's well documented. Um, there's solid history uh, to show whether these things have come from. Uh, the, the Christian church didn't celebrate Christmas for the first few hundred years. Uh, it wasn't until really we got to the fourth century that it started to become a, a festival that was celebrated. And that was largely because Constantine, the Roman emperor, effectively legalized Christianity. No longer were Christians having to hide and in fear of persecution. Um, and then the, kind of the reverse happened, that the pagan religions of the time started to become more oppressed. And the Christians ended up taking over a number of the, the places of worship, the buildings. I, did you ever stop to think about how the church went from meeting in homes uh, and catacombs and hiding uh, for fear of being captured to suddenly having these lavish ornate buildings that we see down through the Middle Ages and so on? You know, as we said before, the, the, the edict of toleration issued by Constantine was great for architecture but not particularly good for Christianity. Um, and a lot of the, the ideas of Christmas kind of then came through the pagan celebrations already in place. And the idea of worshipping mother and child were in place long, long before Jesus and Mary. And actually, we started to see, and we went through some of the details, of how the whole thing was a big smokescreen laid down by Satan. That way back in Babylon... And we're talking some probably four and a half thousand years ago, somewhere in that, in that kind of region. That what was happening was that this idea that there would be a savior, the seed of the woman, was already well known around the world. And it was spreading out in various religions. And it was particularly in Babylon that this became apparent with a lady named Semiramis, who was the wife of a man named Nimrod. And supposedly then, the baby she was carrying as he was killed, she then said was himself reincarnated. And so we end up with this worship of mother and child, and it went on down. Now Satan intentionally decided, uh, intended um, to try and obfuscate the truth, to move people away from the reality that there would be a saviour born of a woman. But of course, it's all gone full circle. And it's kind of, in a sense, blown up in Satan's face because now people, when they celebrate Christmas, they don't think about Babylon. They don't think about those pagan things, the origins of the Christmas tree and mistletoe and all these ideas. They all came from from paganism. But now people celebrate Christmas and actually people tend to think about Christ. So kind of Satan lost uh, conclusively on that one. But we looked at a lot of the details and that's on the website if you want to go back and review more. We also then went on last week and we looked at Christmas present. And he said, really, the ultimate present, the ultimate gift was Jesus being given. And we looked again at the details surrounding the birth of Jesus, um, where Jesus was actually born. And it may not well have been in, in a stable, but there's some interesting prophecies in the Old Testament that we looked at. And when you understand who those shepherds were, wow, that really opens it up. You know the shepherds on the hillside around Bethlehem? 
had one particular task, and that was to raise lambs for the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. And isn't it interesting that of all the places Jesus could have been born, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the town that was associated with lambs that were raised for sacrifice. And when Jesus came, he came as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You know, I say you couldn't write it. It's been written, but not by man. This has to have been of God, because we're, we're dealing with threads and ideas and themes that have spanned history. It's really quite incredible when you start to look at it. So this morning, what we want to do is to just go on and just conclude and really look at some of the, the prophetic things that underlie Christmas, all these things that were spoken in advance. Now, let me just again reiterate, because a lot of people get a very strange, mixed-up notion of what prophecy is. Prophecy is not a prediction about the future. It's not guessing what might happen. As I've said many times, you know, we can try and predict the weather. And in this country, if we say rain, we're probably going to be close. But actually, that's just an educated guess. We may have some data to base that on, but it's still an educated guess. Prophecy's not that at all. In the Bible, when we deal with prophecy, we're dealing with future events before they happen. It's history recorded in advance. And God actually says, this is one of the tests. If you're this morning, if you're not a believer, this is one of the tests that God gives. He says, look, try me. Prove me in this. Because I can tell the future before it happens. Because God is outside of time. And this is one of the most incredible things as we start to look through. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, it's amazing because Matthew actually quotes the Old Testament on at least 60 occasions. And the reason he does that is to confirm that Jesus really is the Messiah, the one that the Jews were waiting for. In essence, the one the world was waiting for. The other Gospels do quote other passages, but not to the extent that Matthew does. And really, Jesus' credentials were that he fulfilled prophecy. It's an interesting experiment if you just take some of those prophecies, and people will say, oh yeah, but that could have happened to anybody. No, it couldn't. Not when you look at the specific details of the things that were recorded. And if you just take the probability of those events, what's the probability of anybody being born in Bethlehem? And then you start to multiply that up and you look at the other factors and the things that we'll look at this morning, you realise that there is only one person in all of history that could have fulfilled these prophecies, and that is Jesus himself. And that, therefore, proves that Jesus really is the Messiah. And there are so many details that we could look at. So this morning, what do we just kind of build on and look for going forward from is that Jesus was the seed of the woman. This was the promise given back in Genesis 3.15, that whilst Adam and Eve had sinned and they transgressed, they'd broken God's law, God had promised them a saviour who was to be the seed of a woman. Now, biologically, we know that the seed is from the man. So this is an interesting prophecy in and of itself. And we actually discover, even in just this one point, another incredible evidence of design. Because this prophecy, amongst other things, anticipates and overcomes the Jeconiah problem. Now, you're probably not aware of the Jeconiah problem, so let me just explain to you the problem we had. Now, we've got in the Gospel of Matthew the history, the family tree, coming down from David all the way down ultimately to Jesus. And we come down through Solomon, King Solomon, David's son, and then through his son and go on. So just one family line. Just just one thing to mention, first of all, you see those three names halfway down that list that are greyed out. Well, it's interesting because those sons of Jehoram were wicked, evil kings. Now, back in the law, God had said that he would blot out the names of those who went into idolatry. And when you read Matthew's account, you'll find those three names are not there. You go straight from Jehoram to Isaiah. 
Now, of course, Matthew wasn't ignorant. He knew those individuals were there, but he chooses not to record them. How interesting that God takes very seriously the people that would reject him and willingly turn away. So that's the first thing just to mention. But as we move on, the really interesting part is that we get down to a man by the name of Jeconiah or Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is various names he's known as. Um, but he becomes one of the kings right at the end of Israel's time in the land before they got taken captive to Babylon. Now, what's interesting is because of his iniquity, because of his rebellion and so on, we find that a curse is pronounced against him in the book of Jeremiah. It says this, Thus says the Lord, write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now, you've got to think at this point, Satan was pretty happy because this is almost like seemingly God shooting himself in the foot. God has promised that the the line is going to come down through the family of Abraham and through David's particular branch of that family, through the tribe of Judah, through the family of David. And now we get to this individual and God it, it, it pronounces his judgment on him and says that none of your descendants, none of your seed are going to sit on the throne ruling. And that seemingly now cuts off the, the possibility of Jesus coming from this line. Interestingly, you will note at the bottom, Joseph wasn't just some average chap from Nazareth. He was a man who was actually of the royal line. He was legally entitled to be king of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Did you know that? But then what's interesting is that in the Luke's account in the New Testament, Luke takes the line down from Nathan, and that's the second surviving son of Bathsheba, and David married Bathsheba, and they had Solomon first, and then Nathan afterwards. And that line comes all the way down to Mary. Both of them are related directly back to King David. Now, one of the interesting things here is, if you go back into the Old Testament, into Numbers 27, you find that there's a very strange little passage. There's these five daughters. The oldest daughter happens to be named Marla, which is where we got the name Marla from. And they go to Moses and say, look, our father doesn't have any sons, and the rules of inheritance are that only a son can inherit, and, and we don't feel happy about that. We think that, actually, we should be able to inherit in our father's name. So Moses writes this exception into the rules, that if a family is such that there's only daughters and there's no sons to inherit and carry on the family name and keep the, the land and everything that you have, that, that it would pass to the daughters. Now, this is granted also by Joshua and so what would happen is typically that the husband then would adopt his son-in-law, whoever his daughter marries, as his own son. And this way they'd carry on the family line and so on. Now, all of this therefore anticipates the lineage of Christ because the line down from Solomon, because of Jeconiah, effectively says that none of your descendants, none of your seed will sit on the throne. Well, from a legal point of view, Joseph, and therefore Christ, is in a position where they can inherit the throne. But not from that lineage from the seed point of view, but however from Mary's side, and because Eli adopts Joseph as his son-in-law, we get around that blood curse issue as well. And in Luke 3.23, it says there, specifically in the text, that Joseph was the son-in-law of Eli. That's what it says in our translations. Actually, the Greek is a little bit more specific. It uses the word there, nomitso. It means reckoned as by law. Literally, he adopted him as his own son. It's an interesting thing I just thought I'd share. Now let's just move on because we read in Matthew's account, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child 
of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. In other words, he didn't want to bring any shame upon her. Now, as we said already, Joseph was the legal heir to the throne. He, he was in a, a position he was quite respected because of this. The, the, the word that we have there explaining him, speaking of him being a just man, it's uh, dikaios, it means equitable in character, holy. That, this was the kind of character that, that Joseph was. And suddenly faced in this position that he finds out that his girlfriend's pregnant. Well, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the law, we read this. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then you shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and you shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, uh, because she cried not being in the city, and the man, because he has humbled his neighbor's wife, so that they put away evil from among you. But if a man be a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. Uh, there is in the damsel no sin worthy of death, for uh, as when a man rises against his neighbor and slays him, even so in this matter, for he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. So in other words, if something happens in the city, then effectively that both parties would be put to death under Jewish law. But if it happened away, then the assumption was that the woman would have cried out and so on. So Joseph is in this position, knowing what the law states. So he's, what does he do here? Because if he's publicly known, there's a risk that Mary could be put to death. Now obviously he cares for Mary, no question. And we read verse 20, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now, it's important that the angel appears at this point. We looked last week talking a little bit about the occasions when angels appear. And this is so important because if Joseph had decided not to go through with this, Mary could have been put to death. No saviour, no Jesus. All the way through the Old Testament you find these moments where we get down to just one surviving member of a family and God preserves that individual and so on. God went to extraordinary lengths to ensure that Jesus could be born. Something else I want to just highlight to you here though, because first of all, it says here that uh, take thee Mary thy wife. You see, under the Jewish law, they weren't actually married yet, but they were espoused. Now, espousal to the Jews is way more than our engagement is. And Mary was already considered to be his wife, even though they hadn't yet gone through the formal part of the ceremony. But something else here I want to draw your attention to. And we're told that Mary, it says, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Very easy just to read that and to to move on. But I want to pose something here just to make you think a little bit. Was it Mary's egg or not? You see, we, we know that this conception is something that is of God, that God engineers. But a lot of people just assume that Mary becomes effectively a, a surrogate mother. Well, we read in Luke's account, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Now, once again, I just want to highlight the fact that after years and years of studying the Bible, don't take anything for granted. When you get details and words, take notes. The Bible doesn't make mistakes. 
We're told here that thou shalt conceive in thy womb. Now, guys, I don't expect you to understand this, but the ladies probably will, and I understand this because I've been married and I've been told by, it's actually my mum that did the study, so otherwise I wouldn't have understood this. But conception actually takes place in the fallopian tube, and the embryo then travels to the womb. So notice here that we're told that Mary conceived in her womb. It's almost like God implanted this embryo complete. And we read in Romans 8 verse 3 that God is sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the book of Romans also we find that God speaks of Jesus as being the second Adam. God created Adam in the first place. And God, from a physical perspective, creates the body of Jesus as well. In Galatians 4.4 4 it says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. Now, again, nowhere in scripture does... Jesus called Mary mother. Purely from a, a, a carrying point of view, she carries Jesus for the duration of the pregnancy. But that's it. You see, if Christ was made under the law, as we're told there from the passage in Galatians, he was put in a position of being subject to the law. And in just the same way, if he was, if he was made of a woman, then he was put in a position of being subject to Mary, i.e. in her care, for her to bring him up in her family. We carry on verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now notice his people. Specifically, that's referring to the nation of Israel. But of course, in a broader sense, connotatively, it's referring to the whole world. Now all this was done. Now notice here that it might be fulfilled. Matthew repeatedly says these things. He's not just giving the benefit of his experience or opinion. He's saying, guys, this was written down. This was recorded years ago. This was all done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Matthew's going to continue to focus on the prophecies that have been fulfilled. Verse 24, we carry on. Then Joseph, being raised from the sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. That's just incredible trust and faith for Joseph to go through. Yes, he's been visited by an angel. But I'm sure there must have been moments where he thought, did I really see that angel? Did that happen? And he must have been wondering at times, but what faith, just to trust, and no doubt also aware of some of these prophecies. We carry on to chapter 2, and this is very interesting, because we read, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and I come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I mean, we read this, we've heard this many times, I'm sure. But these wise men that turn up at Herod's palace, they ask a question, and Jerusalem is shaking. Why? Well, we're going to go on and look at some of the reasons. Who were they, first of all? Where did they come from? Why did they travel so far? How did they know about this king? How many were there? And why was all Jerusalem troubled? Well, we're going to try and answer some of these things, but I can assure you that the pictures you get on your typical Christmas cards are a long way from the truth. 
I'm sure you've seen many of those uh, images before. Uh, Eastern tradition, just to talk about what tradition has said, said there were actually 12 wise men, and they arrived just after Christmas, actually, on about the 6th of January. In the 3rd century, they were referred to as kings, because they were bearing these gifts. An allusion was made to Psalm 72. We'll look at that in just a second. A Western tradition then has basically said that there were three kings, and again they arrived just after Christmas uh, at Epiphany on the 6th of January again. A verse from Psalm 72 says this, He should have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and all the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Sheba shall offer gifts. So because of this verse, some Bible commentators, scholars, whatever, said, well, look, there's a reference here to kings bringing gifts. Well, this surely is a a prophecy of that. No, it's not. Because not only does it speak of the kings of Tarshish, which is one of the isles of the sea, possibly Tarshish being a reference to this country, interestingly enough. Tarshish, we know, was a source of tin in this country, certainly Cornwall and so on were a source of tin back in those days. But it also speaks of the kings of Sheba and and all these other areas. Now, this didn't occur at that time. But nevertheless, this led to this idea that we had kings. There was a 6th century chronicle that then listed these three kings, apparently. Because we've got three gifts, surely we have three kings. That was the reasoning. And you, you're probably familiar, you may have seen and come across these names before. Back in the 6th, 7th century, commentator, scholar by the name of Bede, suggested that they were actually representative of the three sons of Noah, representing Shem, Ham, Japheth, Asia, Africa, and Europe. That's why there's three. Interesting conjecture, but no scriptural basis for it. By the 14th century, we start to find out that we've got Balthazar was the king of Arabia, Melchor, the king of Persia, and Gaspar, the king of India. This then becomes a tradition. Now, what's even more incredible is Way back, there were found a dig, an archaeological dig in Persia, three skulls, all in the grave together. I mean, come on, who else could they be? And so they became revered, deified, worshipped almost, because of their status. So these skulls apparently became the kings. Now, you may think that's crazy, but actually, um, Bishop Raulud of Cologne, during a time of prosperity, decided he wanted to get hold of these skulls. He paid a huge sum of money to get his hands on them from Milan, which is where they'd been held up at that, to that time. And he put them in Cologne Cathedral in about 1163 AD. And they're actually still there today. You can actually go and see the, uh, the shrine that's been built for them. Incredible. This is what it looks like. Very, very beautiful, very ornate. And inside this, apparently, we have these three skulls of a, these apparently three kings and so on. And there's the pictures there on the side of this... Uh, it's not really a sarcophagus, is it? Because it's just the skulls in there. But you've got the, the kings allegedly there just bringing their gifts to Jesus. That's another view from the end. It's a very, very beautiful construction. But again, very far removed from the uh, the biblical text. So the question then really comes, okay, we can see that this is clearly flawed in some regard. So what about these individuals? Who were they? Well, Verse 1, as we've just seen, calls them wise men. Matthew actually is far more specific in the original text, and he specifically calls them magi. Now, magi actually come up a number of times in ancient history. They're a very well-known and well-respected group. 
And very, very powerful individuals in the ancient world. And certainly at the time of Herod, the time of Jesus' birth, Magi would have been well known. They were the priests of Media. You, you remember we have the, the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, these were the priests of Media. And they were renowned for interpreting dreams. It was one of the, the things that apparently they had reputation for being able to do. Uh, what they seemingly had done was mixed up the science of astronomy with the superstition of astrology. And they merged all of this together. But we start to see them occurring at various points in history trying to predict future events. You know, fortune-telling, sorcery, and so on. And by the way, magic, the word magic, is actually derived from magi, as is the word magistrate. They all come from this idea. The magi were very authoritative. They had a lot of power and passed judgment and so on. There was a political and religious component to what they did. Well, as their reputation grew, they were looked to for advice. And of course, the world was changing a lot back in, in those times, and no government in the East would be without their team of magi. Any important decision would first be run by the magi to see what they should do, and particularly in regard to the appointment of a king. And they make a number of biblical appearances. In the book of Esther, we read there, Then the king said unto the wise men, there you go, that's our magi there. Which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And then we're given the names of some of these individuals. Uh, we're told that clearly there, seven princes of Persia and Media which saw the king's face and so on. The king consults them regarding this problem he has with his wife that would not obey him. He says, what should we do unto Queen Vashti according to the law? And so these individuals, these magi, give the king counsel and advice. Of course, that leads on to the situation where Esther then eventually becomes appointed and, you know, I'm sure the account, incredible account of the, the book of Esther. But in Daniel, we see them as well. We read there, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams. Wherever the spirit was troubled, then his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians, that's the magi, and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. <laughs> then spoke the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we shall show thee the interpretation. You've got to understand there was rivalry in the court. We have the Magi. These are the, the Median authorities, priests and so on. But these were the Chaldeans. And so the Chaldeans jump in first and say, King, we can do it. They just kind of jump in the gun. They want to show how they're better than the others. But then they hit a problem because the king says, I can't remember the dream. You tell me anyway. And now they kind of wish they'd let the Magi go first. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me, for if you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Again, at this point they really wish they'd just held their peace and let the Magi step in and try and answer the question. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There's not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that are such things of any magi <laughs> or astrology. You see, they're trying to pass the blame, saying, Well, we can't do it, but they can't do it either. Astrologer or Chaldean. And we're told that for this cause the king was angry and furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the account, because Daniel is amongst the the people that have been brought from Jerusalem, from Israel, and they joined this team of people that the king has set about him for advice. 
Was read the, the decree went out went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. So Daniel now gets caught up in all of this as well, and they're about to kill him. Daniel steps forward and says, "Hang on a minute, there is a God in heaven who can interpret dreams." And so Daniel comes and he tells the king what dream he dreamed, and then the meaning of the dream. And at the end of the tra- chapter we read, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel, and commanded that they should offer an oblation of sweet odours unto him. And the king answered unto Daniel and said of a truth, It is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man, and gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel, this young Jewish boy that was taken from his home, age about 14, ends up growing up in the court in Babylon. He ends up becoming, being placed as the head over the Magi. That was incredible. As I've said before, this was a hereditary order. I mean, they must have been furious at the time. But of course they didn't get a say in the matter. And having said that, Daniel already proved his credentials because he trusted the God of heaven. Jeremiah 39 actually refers to this title, Rab Mag. It just means chief of the Magi. That's what Daniel becomes. And so Nebuchadnezzar gave up the worship of Ishtar, which is actually where we get Easter from, and was apparently converted. Incredible testimony and account. So it seems that much happened to the Magi under Daniel's ministry. If you go to chapter 5 and verse 7 of Daniel, you come to Belshazzar's feast. And you'll notice that the king at that time calls the soothsayers, but the magi are mysteriously not present. They have nothing to do now with the fortune-telling and all the iniquity and the, the paganism, all the things that were going on. Daniel seemingly had a big influence on them. And there's no doubt at all that many of the magi carried on as true believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Daniel. And from this time on, Daniel obviously was their ruler. In the New Testament, interestingly, we see echoes of this. In Acts chapter 8, we read there of an individual. There was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he was some great one. Obviously, yeah. Had delusions of grandeur. We actually find that his name was Simon Magus. That surname comes from the word Magi. A little bit further on in the book of Acts, we read in there, when they had gone through the aisle to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elimaeus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. They were given the interpretation there, but literally the man's name means one of the magi. That's who this individual is. So they'd kind of carried down, they'd obviously spread out. They tried to use this heritage and this history to give them some sort of standing. So even in Jesus' time, there was various fragments that had come out of this group. Another thing to highlight at this point is that the Parthian Empire was well established by now. It was this ancient empire of Asia. The area now that we consider is Iran, Afghanistan and so on. Uh, the Parthians were of the Scythian descent and they adopted the Median dress and Aryan speech and so on. Uh, Parthia was subjected successively to the Syrians, the Medes, the Persians and Macedonians under Alexander the Great and then later uh, the Seleucids and so on. But in 250 BC, 
the Parthians succeeded in founding an independent kingdom. During the first century, their empire grew from the Euphrates to the Indus River, a large geographical area. And after the middle of the first century, Parthia was thus a rival for Rome. And so there's these two areas, effectively competing. If you look at the Roman Empire, and then you see the Parthian Empire, and notice what's right in the middle there. That area that includes Israel. I want you to think about this. Think about the political tension that exists because of this. Pompey, the first Roman conqueror of Jerusalem in 63 BC, he had attacked the Armenian outpost of Parthia. 55 BC, Crassus again led Roman legions in sacking Jerusalem and in a subsequent attack on Parthia proper. The Romans were decisively defeated at the Battle of Carhe with the loss of about 30,000 troops, including their commander. So the Romans were now very aware of the danger these people posed. Parthians counterattacked with a token invasion of Armenia, Syria and also Palestine. Now, nominal Roman rule was then re-established under, under Antipa, who was the father of Herod, who in turn retreated before a Parthian invasion in 40 BC. So there's a lot of tension between these groups. Mark Antony, Antony and Cleopatra from history, I'm sure you're familiar, then re-established Roman sovereignty in 37 BC. And like um, Cassius before him, also embarked on a similarly ill-fated Parthian expedition. His disastrous retreat was followed by another wave of these Parthians invading and it's all swept uh, the Roman opposition completely out of Palestine at that point, including Herod himself, who had to flee to Alexandria and then to Rome. Later, with the Parthian collaboration, the Jewish sovereignty was also restored, and Jerusalem was fortified with a Jewish garrison. Now, Herod, by this time, secured from Augustus Caesar the title of King of the Jews. Do you start to see where we're going? But it was not for three years, including a five-month siege by Roman troops, that the king was able to occupy his own capital city because of this Parthian threat that existed for the Romans. So Herod had gained the throne of a rebellious buffer state situated between these two big, mighty, contending empires. At any time, his own subjects might conspire in bringing the Parthians to their aid. Certainly the Parthians seemed more sympathetic to the Jews than the Romans had done. Augustus was also getting on a bit. Rome, since the retirement of Tiberius, was without any experienced military commander. And pro-Parthia, Armenia was also uh, fomenting a revolt against Rome, which actually was then completed within two years of that. Now, at the time of the birth of Christ, Herod was close to his final illness. He was old, he was not in good health at all. So the time was, of course, right for another Parthian invasion of this buffer provinces. Except for the fact that Parthia itself was racked by also internal dissension. There was problems they had. I'll spare you all the, the details, but the Persian Magi were already involved in the political manoeuvring, looking to choose a new successor. So it's possible that the Magi might have taken advantage of the king's lack of popularity to further their own interests with the establishment of a new dynasty if they could find a sufficiently strong contender. So it was then that a group of Persian or Parthian kingmakers entered Jerusalem in the latter days of Herod's reign. They go knocking up on the door of Herod's palace and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? See, Herod wasn't 
legitimately a, a king of Israel. He was simply a Roman appointee. Chuck Minister makes this comment. He says, the Magi likely traveling in force with unimaginable oriental pomp and adequate cavalry escort to ensure their safe penetration of Roman territory certainly alarmed Herod and the entire populace of Jerusalem. Herod's reaction was understandably one of fear. When you consider the background of this rivalry that had gone on during his lifetime and the fact that he'd already had to flee once because of this. Now we've got this idea we see on Christmas cards that we have these three kings riding camels and they go to Bethlehem and they offer these three gifts. Well that's not the view that's been held throughout history. This picture here by Giovanni, referred to as the journey of the Magi, actually shows the Magi, not just three, but a number of them, riding on horses. We're familiar with the whole concept of the Persian horse, you know? Persians love their horses, always have done. They wouldn't have come on camels for a start. That's a minor point, but another picture there. This is from Botticelli, who drew this. Referred to as the adoration of the Magi. And notice again, there's a large number of them. Another one here. Again, if you look in this picture, you get the impression of what this really may have been like. Because the reality is, there weren't just three kings. There were a number of these magi that travelled, with anything up to about a thousand or more outriders, riding into Jerusalem, knocking on Herod's door, saying, where is the real king? You can start to see why Jerusalem was troubled. You can start to see why Herod was so concerned about this. And you start to see why Herod ordered the death of those babies. He saw a real threat. Not just to Rome, more importantly for Herod to himself. Another interesting aside here, the last king of Israel was taken captive, Zedekiah, to Babylon. And that is where the monarchy rested or stopped at that point. Interestingly, the Magi came from that very place, bringing the crown back to Israel, to the next king of Israel, who was still yet to be crowned. Matthew 2, picking up verse 4, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So Herod has ordered this to be found. Go get the scribes, tell us where this is supposed to happen. It's happening in Bethlehem, eight miles down the road. You see why Herod is really not very happy about this at all. Notice again that reference to these prophecies. All this had been written down before. And then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time... The star appeared. And notice what Herod does. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring word again that I may, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Yeah. That wasn't really his intention at all, was it? Back in Luke's account, we read there, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And, and all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. We know this is the background as to why Joseph and Mary went back to, to Jerusalem. We told, and Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, 
this is in the Bible. This isn't must making stuff. Where did Joseph and Mary come from? Nazareth. That's where they lived. It was a home. Why did they go to Bethlehem? Just because of the census. Because they'd come from there originally. But their house, their home, was in Nazareth. Verse 7. And she brought forth the firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. We're told again about the shepherds keeping their flocks. And the shepherds come, and we looked at this in detail last week, we're not going to go over this again now, but the shepherds leave because of everything they've seen, rejoicing. But then we read on, a portion that's often not spoken about, and when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus. They waited for eight days, according to the Jewish law. They then circumcised Jesus, as the law said they should. And they named him Jesus because that's the name the angel had said to give him. And then notice, and when the days of her purification, according to the law, see all of this was according to the law, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So about 41 days later, according to the law, they leave Bethlehem and they go to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, you were given options as to what you could bring. Depending on your wealth, if you had more money, you would bring sheep and you would offer them. You'd bring a lamb. If you didn't have the money, then you'd bring turtle doves or pigeons and so on. Well, we're told here what they did bring. What this tells you is they weren't well off. They didn't have a lot of money. They certainly weren't sitting there with a pot of gold that's just been delivered by these Persian kingmakers. But it hadn't happened yet. And when they had performed all things, notice again, according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. They went home. Why is that so hard? That's what they would do. That's what we would do. They went back home. They only went to Bethlehem for the census. While they were there, Mary gives birth. But they don't want to stay there any longer than they had to. After a purification days, they go up to the temple, they offer the sacrifice they're supposed to in Jerusalem, and they go home. So they go, it's three cap, to Bethlehem for the census. Jesus is born, a star appears, the shepherds visit and return with joy. After eight days, Jesus is circumcised. After 41 days, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to present Jesus to the Lord and offer sacrifices Simeon and Anna, who are there in the temple, glorify God. And the family then returns home to Nazareth. Sometime later then, the Magi come seeking Jesus. Verse 9, and when they had heard the king, this is back to the Magi again, they departed, and lo, the star which they had sawn in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. Now this again is such a simple statement that people seem to have Mixed up so thoroughly. Notice where they were when they saw the star. They were in the east. They saw the star when they were in the east. We don't know where the star was specifically, but they were in the east and they saw the star. The star obviously was a trigger, no doubt based upon things they'd got from Daniel. Daniel spoke a lot prophetically about the coming of the Messiah. And they saw the star and they knew it was time. Daniel had already specifically said, the time. And so they knew. And so they set off on their journey. But notice what happens. Because when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy as they come out from Herod. Now, we were so wrapped up in this whole star of Bethlehem idea. 
And we have our lovely pictures on Christmas cards and so on with the star above the manger. It's just so idyllic and everything else. But notice that when they came out from seeing Herod, the word is low. Literally, suddenly they saw the star which they'd seen in the east. They hadn't seen it since then, but now, lo, here it was again. Suddenly it appears. And wonder they were excited and rejoiced with exceeding great joy. But what we need to ask here, why, at this point, when they come out from seeing Herod, would God need to give them the star again? Surely Herod's just told them where the child would be. You know, if Herod had given them the correct directions, there would be no need for God to have given the star at all. But if you notice in that previous verse, when they arrive, they arrive at a house where the young child was. No longer a baby in a manger. And we're told that when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, now that's a slightly different take on what we often hear. They didn't just bring three gifts. They brought treasures. They presented him unto him gifts. And specifically three gifts are highlighted for us. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. Why? Well, gold speaks of deity. Frankincense spoke of the priesthood. It was something that was mixed into the showbread, the bread that they were to have permanently in the temple, the tabernacle and of the temple. And myrrh, of course, when crushed, would be an anointment, anointing oil for burial. That's why those three gifts are specifically mentioned. But it may be they gave many other gifts besides. They brought their treasures, we're told. And also this speaks of Christ in his three roles as prophet, priest, and king. The myrrh, speaking, of course, of the priesthood. Just that willingness to lay down his life, that intercessory role for us. A prophet declaring God's word and as a king. Notice the distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's 65 miles as the, the crow flies. And we're told that the, the Magi, after leaving Herod, being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. You see, there's no way that God was going to let them go back and say, by the way, Herod, he's not in Bethlehem. He's up in Nazareth now. That wasn't going to happen. So they're warned by God in this dream. And they depart to their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And lo, when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. And there thou shalt be until I bring thee word from Herod. And so he would seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled. Notice again, prophecies being fulfilled all over the place here. Um, which was spoken of by the Lord, by the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. And then was fulfilled, another fulfillment of prophecy here, that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah, the prophet saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for they are dead. 
and which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came to the land of Israel. But when they had heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee and came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. They'd gone home. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he should be called a Nazarene. Yet another prophecy fulfilled. So, to conclude, Jesus had to be the seed of the woman for a number of reasons, but not least to get around that blood curse we looked at right at the start. Jesus had to be a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, of, of the tribe of Judah, born of the house and lineage of David. Had to be born in Bethlehem, born as we were looking at last week at the Tower of the Flock at Migdal Eder. This specific place where these lambs would be born, destined for their later sacrifice in the temple. Jesus had to be born as a lamb. He had to be from Nazareth. All of these things fulfilled. You know, tradition has done a lot to just foggy our understanding of Christmas. But when we get back to the Bible and you start to see just how incredible all of these things really were, how much God accomplished, how much God did, and as we said a number of times over the last couple of weeks, yeah, we spend time getting ready for Christmas. God spent 4,000 years getting ready for the first Christmas. And everything had to be right. And it had to be right because this was so important. Because upon this event hangs our salvation. You see, Jesus was born so that later he would grow up and he would be offered in Jerusalem as a sacrificial lamb to pay for the sins of the world. That's paying for your sins and my sins so that we could be restored to a right relationship with God. You know, the, God has given us the Bible so that we don't have to go, well, I don't know. We've got the Bible so we can go, okay, so we do know. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. But unless each individual puts their trust in Jesus, you don't benefit from the incredible and extraordinary lengths that God has gone to to make salvation available. Let's just close in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity we've had to review these things. Lord, just to separate the truth from the tradition. Father, we do thank you that you have just gone to such incredible lengths to make it possible for us to be restored to a right relationship with you. That all of our sin, all of our iniquity, everything we've ever thought, done or said could all be washed away. We don't have to bear the guilt. We don't have to have a guilty conscience. All of that is forgiven and cleansed and washed away so that we can be yours again. And Jesus, we thank you that you came so willingly, that you were humbled, but that now you've been exalted. Lord Jesus, this Christmas time, may we, just as the shepherds did and as the Magi did, come and worship you. And Lord, as we sing in that carol that we love, Lord, we may not have gold, frankincense, myrrh, but what we do have, we give you. Lord, we give our hearts, we give all that we have. And we say, Jesus, we want you to be the Lord of our lives. We know that you will return and be the king of Israel, the king of this world. But Lord, right now we want you to be the king 
of our own lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.